0: Blog Talk Radio. Oh.
1: Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories about addiction and recovery. This is Catherine, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, Ellie. Hi, Ellie. How are you? I'm
2: doing well, aside from a little case of laryngitis. I apologize for that in advance.
1: Um, oh, man. Well, I guess it's really going around, so I, I hope that you're feeling better.
3: I'm feeling um, all right. Thank you.
1: Yeah, and so we have the lovely Jean on the line live-tweeting this episode as we enter the brave new world of our feelings. Tonight's show topic was suggested to us by a listener who sent us an email saying, I find that I'm looking everywhere for discussion about feeling the feelings and sitting with difficult emotions and surfing the urge, and I keep wishing there was a Bubble Hour episode about it. For me personally, she said, it feels like that one single skill is the most important one to cultivate in order to protect my sobriety and, honestly, to live an authentic life. Well, that sure resonated with us, and we are grateful for the suggestion. While we're active in our addictions, we're numbing all of our feelings. Although the initial impulse might be to dull the hard emotions like fear, anger, or hurt, the actual result is that we dull all of our emotions, limiting our experience of joy, contentment, and connection. When we get sober, we find a crazy new rush of feelings, good and bad, and that can be overwhelming. And tonight, we'll discuss our experiences with our emotions and techniques for processing them. So we're joined by two terrific guests to help us with the topic, John and Sally. Hi, guys.
3: Hi. Hi Catherine.
1: Glad to be here. Welcome, Glad to have you. And so I'd like to start by having John and Sally introduce themselves and a bit about their stories before we dive into the topic, just so we can get to know you. So regular listeners will remember John. He joined us on the December 15th, 2013 episode on Other Addictions, when he shared about his recovery from a compulsive gambling addiction. Welcome back, John.
0: Thank you, Catherine. Glad to be back.
1: So maybe can you just tell us a little bit about your recovery story for our listeners who aren't familiar with it?
0: Sure. Um, Thank you for having me back. I'm very grateful that you're here each week uh, exploring topics like this one. As I hope to illustrate in this share, uh, the instruction to feel the feelings and lose the story changed everything for me. Um, I think it has been perhaps the single most important lesson I've learned in recovery. It's actually now a mantra for me the feelings, lose the story, and it has recently opened the door to a transformation I never expected, even a year ago when we spoke last. Um, I'd like to start, as many of us in recovery do. My name is John, and I am a compulsive gambler in recovery. I first admitted powerlessness over gambling in December 2011 when I woke in a grubby motel near a casino where I had spent a sleepless 36 hours, and I felt deeply what the recovery literature calls pitiful, and incomprehensive demoralization. I felt shattered, broken, and completely alone in the universe. My descent into addiction was swift and devastating. I had started gambling only eight months before, after a lifetime of not gambling. It was like I stuck a heroin needle in my arm, and it contradicted everything that I thought about myself. I was 40 years old, a father of three children, and a financial services executive with a graduate business degree. Of course, underneath the surface, where no one else can see, other things were happening. I was lost in a failing marriage and descending into a deep, confusing depression. For for escape, some people turned to drugs, some people turned to drink, and I turned to gambling. Uh, In a casino, I achieved, at least for a time, zombie-like numbness. I was, for all intents and purposes, set to self-destruct. In December 2011, something in the universe whispered to me, Stop! Some voice inside me said, Enough! In the civilian world, after I hit bottom, my now ex-wife labeled me a lying, cheating gambler. And in the early days, earliest days of my recovery, I was filled with a toxic mixture of self-loathing, shame, anger, fear, and helplessness. As Brene Brown has written, though, shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. Yet I, like each of you, received the gift of finding the rooms of recovery and the grace of meeting others who had survived. In the rooms of recovery, we talk about what our life was like, what happened, and where we are now. And we listen to others who share their stories. I have always found meaning in narratives and listening to others who in turn listened to me gave me a new ground where I felt safe, accepted, and embraced, even after I had recited the facts of my addiction and shame. At first, I wanted to understand why I was an addict, and I tried and tried to find a narrative to help me make sense of it all. So I could somehow, someday, perhaps prove to the world and to myself that I was not broken. I wanted epiphanies. I wanted insight. And I wanted to find and reprogram the source code of me. In the first year of recovery, in the rooms and with the therapist, I talked and talked and talked, intellectualizing my story, seeking metaphors for understanding. But, and this may be the most important and relevant aspect for today's topic, I still somehow dissociated from the emotions within me. I was in my mind and I made emotions into abstract concepts. I knew fear. I knew anger. I knew shame. I could label these things as emotions and talk about them, but truly I had absolutely no idea what to do with the emotions. In 2013, about 17 months after I stopped gambling and navigated a nasty divorce, a period in which I reconnected deeply with my parents and sister and some others, I relapsed. I gambled. I don't know what triggered me. So I now suspect it was related to an unconscious urge to escape some difficult, unresolved emotions I did not know how to process. It scared me. Everything hung in the balance again. But I was no longer alone. The rooms of recovery.
1: Hello? Are you there?
2: Oh, we lost John. Um, Sally, I'm sorry to pitch this to you last minute. I'm going to try calling him back um, while you share, if that's all right. Sure. sure. Do
1: you want to just introduce yes. introduce Sally briefly? I I will and we'll we'll get John back because there's a lot here to to talk about um for listeners who did not hear our Shame episode that we did a couple of weeks ago was um it kind of gets at that toxic combination of emotions that he mentioned. So that's one to look for. But Sally, um, so you're you're like the host of this show, a woman in recovery from alcoholism, and we're really glad to have you here tonight. Maybe can you give us a little bit of an introduction to your story? Sure,
3: sure. So again, I guess I would start by saying uh, my name is Sally, and I'm an alcoholic, and uh, that's I've been uh, sober now since my sobriety date is March thirty first in two thousand eleven. And um, a little bit about me is that you know I'm coming to this a little late in the late in the program. I'm I'm in my uh, 50s, so and I um, was noticing that I,
0: <clears throat>
3: you know, I'm a I'm, I feel like I'm an accomplished person. I've got it. I've got a business degree and a and a, I'm an advertising. Senior management person, but I just found that I was uh, drinking too much and couldn't stop, and I couldn't figure out how somebody who was able and accomplished in so many other areas wasn't able to stop drinking. So, and for me, I think one of the things that happened uh, was that I was able to drink for a while, but but then. I found my relationship was kind of falling apart, and I didn't think I wanted—I didn't want to face those feelings. And so I found myself drinking more and more <clears throat> to try to numb out those feelings. And that, then it got to a point where I couldn't couldn't stop. So, you know, somehow I managed to uh, find my way into <clears throat> into a twelve-step recovery room, where I learned that. Uh, you know, learn that there was a a different way to approach it. But, you know, you kind of had to get to that point where, where it was, it was unbearable and miserable and, um, didn't feel like life was worth, um, a little background on me too is that I was partnered with a woman for, um, almost 20 years. And then we have a, a daughter who's now 14 and, um, you know, being, uh, having a, having a, being a parent of a teenager is, is challenging in its, in its own right. Um, but, uh, you know, that's another thing too, to, that you could find that you not knowing how to do that is, uh, is something, you know, those uncertainties and in, in, right. you know, lack of, lack of confidence, et cetera. Um, anyway, found my way to the 12 step rooms and, um, I found that there was another way, you know, there's a different way to, to approach these problems. And I've learned so much through this that um, I feel very grateful to have to have found the, the recovery room. <clears throat> um, and then another yeah. thing that... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, this past year I had another um, major thing to tackle, which is um, I found that I had breast cancer, Back in April of twenty fourteen and uh you know that kind of rocks rocked my world completely but it was it wasn't even the breast cancer that was hard, it was the fact that I was going to have to have chemotherapy and I was going to lose my hair and have to be so public about it and but you know that talk about having to feel your feelings, you know there was no way to hide and there was but what I found is that having had the base now of this concept of um, relying on a power greater than yourself and the other people in the in the rooms enabled me to kind of you know face that and with an inc- there, there was an, it was an incredible period of of grace for me to see how much the world by, by sharing that with people how much the world absolutely just stepped right up and carried me through that entire experience. Um, it was an amazing thing to see that I wasn't alone and that so many people came and helped. And I don't know if I would have, if I had tried to hide that, I wouldn't have had that amazing experience. So I'm grateful, very grateful for that. Yeah, there's a lot in Thank there, you. Sally, about,
1: about sitting with the emotions Ellie, um, was that you? I think I see John back on the studio board Yeah, he's here.
2: back on. I just We can finish up with Sally, but I wanted to let you know we can turn it back to him when,
1: when you're done. Okay. Great. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I, I think that um, one thing that strikes me both, John and you, Sally, are saying, you know, we're accomplished people and we couldn't figure out why. You know, that, that old uh, bugaboo of a question, why do we fall into – addiction, um, you know, sort of in spite of ourselves. And then also sort of these through lines of life, you know, relationships that, you know, wax and wane and, and the emotions that go along with relationships, certainly parenthood. I don't know if we've ever we've, – we've done some topics that are children-related, specifically like how do we talk to our children about our recovery – I'm not sure if we've tackled, Ellie, maybe if you remember the sort of challenges of just being a parent, but that could be a good follow up. We topic haven't, but it here. certainly would be yeah. good.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would definitely then, want to listen know, just, to that one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Maybe we'll, you never know, we might tap you again if
1: somebody has uh, to come yeah. on and talk about that piece too. But And even, you know, this idea of letting the world um, carry you through. Your cancer treatment. Um, I, I think that's probably something that we want to talk about because that can be that can be really hard. That asking for help. Yeah. Um, yeah.
3: Well, you, um, if I can talk about that, I had this uh, it's amazing. I'll tell you one of the experiences. If it's if it's time for me to talk about that, I don't know if we want to do that there. now or. You know, well, one of the my, so again, as I said, the biggest, the, the scariest part for me was that idea of being publicly sick, you know, like, and you really, and, you know, losing your hair for a woman is a, is, is, you know, a really challenging thing. And one day um, during a meditation, I had this idea of, well, wait, what if I, maybe I don't have to do this alone, you know, maybe I, maybe I can, because I knew that my hairdresser had said, when you wake up and there's hair on your pillow, then that's the time for you to come in and I'll shave, I'll shave you. And uh, so I said, "Well, maybe I don't have to do that alone." And I thought to myself. And she, I called her up, and she said, "You know what, Sally? What we're gonna—I'm gonna close down my shop, and you can invite anybody you want to come. So you to, to be with you when I do this." And um, wow. and so I did, and I asked some people to come, and uh, about about twelve people came. Friends, very close friends. My sister was there. Another sister who couldn't be there was there on FaceTime, and, um, you know, I'm sitting there looking at myself in the mirror thinking, holy cow, this this is happening, you know, this is really happening, but in the mirror, I could see all of those people just with their eyes full of compassion, you know, sharing it with me, and it was this incredible experience for all of us to see wow. this happen and to be there, you know, and, um, you know, they all talk about it, it's this amazing spiritual experience of witnessing somebody going through something like that. And for me, I felt absolutely lifted, lifted up and carried through. So it was extremely powerful that I, if I hadn't opened up to that idea, that that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been possible. That's a beautiful Yeah, I mean the bad old days when
1: it was all about, you know, isolating mm-hmm. and how we thought that's how we wanted to be. And maybe we sometimes still do. Um, yeah, I love that story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe what we can do is, uh, John, are you back?
0: I am. Sorry.
1: Yay! Modern teaching me, technology. Teaching me my and...
0: own lessons, you know, the, the idea of it's not uh, it's not what happens to you it's how you relate to it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. that's, that's exactly. Listen, that's our motto on the on the bubble hour, honey. I'll tell exactly. you, <laughs> we, oh, yeah. we have all kinds of uh, technical issues, but um, so maybe what we can do is if. if you, if you can pick up kind of where you were, John, and sort of finish up your story, and then we can kind of dive some more into the topic of feeling of our feelings, that would be awesome.
0: Yeah, I, I think that the key was when I when I first, you know, went into recovery, I really tried to understand intellectually and read a lot and, you know, talked a lot, and I love stories and I love words and, you know, listened to a lot of people and the stories and really tried to find, you know, whatever key it was for me, but... It really didn't work that way, um, and I can you know say that in retrospect you know after I had relapsed um and then you know as as Sally was saying, you know having a community you know certainly pulled me i, I certainly didn't go as low as the first bottom um and having a community but but going back into that community and suddenly realizing that um you know it really wasn't about figuring it out intellectually. It was about stopping and sitting and, and and listening. And and I think that the key for me was that I did find that as well. And, you know, this idea of mindfulness and practicing it and, you know, I'd heard early on neurons that fire together, wire together. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard that before. And the other thing that I heard is that the issues are in the tissues. And so suddenly it was like, mm. you know, get out of your head and drop down into your body. And I think that the the way that it worked for me was I went... From my head, and I'm fortunate to have Tara Brock. I know that many of you are familiar with Tara Brock's work and, you know, a a well-known sort of Buddhist mindfulness thinker who has podcasts, and she's about a mile away from, you know, where I live, and I started to go. And she has this um, acronym, RAIN, and what it is, it's really to help you find a true refuge when you're... um, you know, your emotions are seem to be yanking us all over the place. And and the idea is you recognize that that's happening and you just sit and you allow it to happen. That's the A. So you recognize and allow. And for a long time, I just stayed in the R and the A, the recognize and allow. And the I is investigate and kind of dig around like we do in different steps. You know, step four, we, you know, take a, a, a look at yourself and make a list of, you know, fears and resentments etc., and then, you know, the N is to not identify, and I I truly don't even know if I've gotten to the not identified piece yet, but sitting in the recognition and allowing the emotions to go up, to to go up, and, and if I can sort of visually think about it, when I sit in meditation, you kind of think of yourself and you see the statues of Buddha or others in meditation in the yogi position, it's almost like a triangle, right? And the way that I think of it is you put a triangle on the ground, And it's almost like that's my container now. I sit and I become a container. And, you know, as I've read later, you know, this idea of containing emotion and being able to hold it um, is so important. And I think that the last piece, and and this was early on when I sat with meditation, number one, people often say, and I think I probably said it before, I could never meditate, but you can't fail at meditation, and that's a great thing. And the idea that, that these waves of emotions come, we've all been at the beach and you see the waves, you know, pounding on the shore. And early on in this meditation, the teacher said, think of it. These waves, they come and slam the shore. Most often, we run away from the waves and we get crushed, you know, on, on on the beach. But if you sit and hold and wait and wait and then you dive through and under the wave, that is where... You can be free. And that concept, that sort of visual, you know, as I sat in meditation was so important to me. I
2: really like that.
1: Yeah. yeah I like that. Yeah, I love yeah. there's so there's so much in, and I mean, I definitely identify with that, you know, connection of the head and the heart. Ellie, you've talked about that too, where where you can Absolutely. get really brainy and um you yeah, know, that, that idea of, <laughs> of intellectualizing the recovery.
2: Yeah, and it's by thinking that gets me into the problems to begin with. Using the same organ that got me in the soup is not the best organ to use to get me out of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I heard John, this do you guy feel recently, like
2: this guy Rick
0: Hansen say that, you know, most of us we, we, we sort of think, you know, it's the cortex, right? The the the, the brain we you know, the operational center of our of our brain. And you know, most of us sit there and we think that we can control what goes on. But obviously we can't. And, and nobody can, uh, whether they're in recovery or not. I mean, things just happen and they're always changing. And this guy, Rick Hansen, who wrote a book called The Buddha's Brain, you know, said, really, there's three parts to the brain, you know, the most primitive part is the reptilian brain, you know, the, the brainstem where we want to avoid harm. And then the mammalian brain, you know, there was our limbic system, the emotions, et cetera. And then sort of our, you know, most advanced brain is the, the place where we, you know, the control center. But, Surges of emotion, just like a city gets browned out in the summer where too much energy is being used, do the same thing to our cortex. And, again, for me, I don't think I actually realized how often my cognitive brain was being browned out by surges of emotion. Yeah. Do you think John, that was
1: something that, okay. you know, played into your relapse? Or the surges of emotion so. that were then unfamiliar? Yeah. I, because you
0: know, and, and, and truly, if if I think of sitting, and once I kind of became this container, and I was like, okay, and let the lesson, you know, comes from Pema Chodron or Tara Brock, this idea that you don't have to go left, you don't have to go right, you don't have to run, you know, just sit with what is, and and it sounds so simple, but it was almost it was the single biggest epiphany that I had was just to sit and let the stuff come up because ultimately in sitting, you know, you think of it, there are so many different metaphors that I've heard for it, but one that I really like is if you think you're on the top of Mount Everest, right, and you just sit as if you're on the top of Mount Everest. Some days are crystal clear and you can see for miles. Some days are the darkest and stormiest days possible. But if you can just imagine yourself sitting there like a mountaintop it changes things somehow.
2: Yeah. I love the these visuals. I'm such a visual thinker and, and it, those are all so helpful, especially when the when the neocortex is browning out. That's definitely something that is a useful tool. And I am also an avid fan of both Pema Chodron and Tara Brock and you mentioned something at the beginning of your share, John. I'd love it if you could just go into a little bit more detail. Um for those who may not be familiar with the concept of lose the story. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more?
0: Yeah, thank you. I mean, to me, that 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 concept feel the feelings and lose the story. That lose the story thing for me was so critical because it meant just stop telling yourself whatever it is. You know, what whatever is it work, is it my children, is it my, you know, relationships, just stop with the story because the story isn't doing you any good just sit and hold the emotion. And I felt myself and this was sort of an odd thing, I felt myself dropping from my brain into my heart and then really into my body. And I was like, wow, my stomach. That's where I hold yeah. stress. Or my yeah. my um my chest, my you know, my, my sternum. Wow. I'm really holding stress there as well. And and in fact sort of seeing that and feeling it without trying without telling myself a story. Or at least yeah. consciously saying, Okay, let go of that story. Let go of that story. And just feel it. It really did change things.
2: Well, and going back into your analogy of diving through the wave instead of letting it roll over us and crush us on the beach, it's um what I've 'cause I've been listening to Tara Brock and trying to practice the, the what you've just described so eloquently and and um uh, what I find is that the story is how I'm usually trying to wriggle out of a feeling. You know, the story that I told myself is the way I tried to go around what you just described, the dropping into my heart and into my gut. You know, the story might be, well, you know, so-and-so is treating me this way, and that's, you know, I'm going to fix it this way, and then going to we're going to say this, and then this is going to happen. the story was just a way to avert the feeling, and all I'm doing is, you know, delaying the inevitable, and all of those storylines are out of of my control anyway. Um and, you know, like that, that expression we hear all the time, the only way out is through. I mean, that's that's the primary tool that I use to try to do that, to know that the weather is going to change. Absolutely. But it won't change unless I acknowledge that there is weather, <laughs> that's, that something is actually, that I'm actually yeah. feeling something.
1: That's powerful. Well, and, and the you know, story the, is not something that's necessarily even you know, based in fact, it's like, we make it up. So Sally, for example, you were saying like your biggest fear was being publicly sick and showing a face of vulnerability and losing your hair. And maybe there's a sense of like, you know, who we are wrapped up in how we look. Um, You know, so, I I mean, I feel like some of that story is like, we, we can carry it in these directions that we sort of make up,
3: that have nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Actually, you guys were as you were talking. I was thinking about another experience where I was, I was just feeling all twisted up and tied up around um, some something going on with my daughter and, and partner. And I remember being out on my bicycle, thinking, "I'm going to go drink. I'm going to go drink. I, I I can't stand this anymore." And I was going to ride down uh, there, you know, one of those outdoor cafes on the Hudson River can go get a nice tall beer, <laughs> and you know something in me said, you know, call somebody. That was that's that's one of the one of the real tools I've learned is to is to to remember that I'm not alone and to reach out and talk to somebody else to get some different perspective. And the woman who I spoke to said, "You don't want a beer; you just want to get out of those feelings." You know, and that was absolutely true. I didn't want the beer, but I, I couldn't tolerate just being in that discomfort of that that horrible discomfort of, you know, self-loathing, the combination of all those feelings that were there. I wanted to get out of them, and uh, I, I my only way of doing it, that I knew how to do that, was to drink, and uh, so that was such a insight as well, that it wasn't that I didn't want to drink, I just wanted to get away from those feelings. Yeah.
0: That's, I, would, yeah. I can completely echo that. That so resonates, Sally, because I mean, I was, I, you know, an escape artist, right? And even now, I mean, when I pick up my cell phone or, you know, I just sort of, I, I, I try to stop myself and say, wow, am I doing this to escape from something that I don't want to deal with? Mm-hmm. And, and, and rather than try to do that, I mean, at least I'm recognizing it and sort of allowing that I may have something there that I don't really want to deal with. But it's much better to sort of lean into the spear or go to those places that scare me because you know the more you practice. One of the great things, Tara uses all these quotes one time and one of the things she said was, you know, Mike Tyson said, Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face.
1: I love <laughs> right. That. <laughs> right. That's right, right.
3: true. Right, that's
1: great. It's so true. That is true. But I even feel like you know when we're talking about this idea of recognize, I heard two different people in two different recovery meetings recently say that when they were in rehab, they handed out a chart that had like one guy said that he got a feel wheel that was, like, naming all of the feelings. And they both said that they were like, what the heck is this? This is, you know, like, of course I know what my feelings are. But what they sort of realized was, and I'd be curious to hear what you guys think of this, is, like, they didn't even necessarily have the vocabulary to recognize what they were feeling. So, like, you know, Sally's story of of being, like, the feeling was oh i have this craving for a beer when really mm-hmm. there was you know other distress going on underneath there um you know Sally does that resonate with you
3: absolutely in fact it wasn't until i stopped drinking that i realized that i wasn't depressed i was maybe i was sad or maybe i was angry you know i mean that was, i never liked to express anger my father was a very, very angry and violently angry person so i usually try to manage my life so that I don't have to put myself in a situation where I'm going to experience anger and um you, you know so that's a new that's a new new emotion for me and the other one is to is to be sad i mean it, being sad isn't the same as being depressed i used to be sad and yeah. think i was depressed and then feel like there was something wrong with me like i was i was a pathetic loser or something you know and it wasn't a pathetic i wasn't a pathetic loser I was sad and and being sad you can you can that's something that is okay but it's foreign. You know, if you're spending you used to spending your whole time trying to get away from emotions, you don't even know what they are. So that definitely resonates with me. And and judging an emotion like
1: sadness as mm-hmm. saying instead of just saying, Now I'm sad mm-hmm. tacking onto that with I'm a pathetic loser, that's the story that we right. want to lose. Right.
2: right.
1: The moral judgment that we wrap around a feeling. Yeah. 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 Oh, I okay. do that too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's a great John, article. how about in New York. you? I mean,
0: yeah. yeah there go was ahead. a great article in New York Times kind of today about grieving. And, and, and it. I wish I had knew the author, but it was about grieving. And one of the things that happens, I think, because our brains, you know, we have this negative bias, right? And we probably all go through this, you know, this feeling where we label emotions. And that's the danger, I think, of labeling emotions sometimes because you're like, okay, that's a weed. You know, I need to root that out of my garden. But mm-hmm. as a practical matter, I mean, that's not always the the best approach because I think by and, – and I certainly did it. I mean, you know, I didn't want to be, quote, bad or shamed or, you know, sort of marinating in, in negative emotions like fear or anger. But it it really was important for me to to sit, you know, and this idea of, you know, sitting in a a meditation position like a triangle and filling. Um, One of the other things that, that I was taught was that if you sit and you label this emotion fear and you have this concept of fear in your brain, your body is going to feel fear. So if you can touch that fear and say, okay, I'm going to let go of that fear and then put a word like calm into your brain, Suddenly, your body changes. If you can visualize the word calm in your brain at that time, things change. I feel my cheeks soften, my stomach loosen, my chest open. Um, and, And it's not trying to say, okay, I can't be afraid, but it's trying to say, okay, if I cling to this fear, my brain is just going to get all riled up. So if I just sit and try to Tilt my attention to something like calm, things change a little bit for me.
2: I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense.
3: Mm-hmm. No, telling. I also think story. sometimes that the reverse yeah, can be
2: true too, because the, getting back to the identifying of feelings, that's something that's always I've always struggled with, and even in recovery and sobriety, I would find know, substitute maladaptive behaviors to avoid feeling feelings, and workaholism was a big one for me. And mm-hmm. um, when I was in treatment, the, the you know I, I would I was I'm the queen of you know I'm fine, I'm okay, everything's <laughs> great. And um, my counselor would say, you know, let's talk about what are you feeling in your body. You know, do a kind of a scan. And Tara Brock has a great yeah. meditation on this also about. You know, and I would say, well, my, my stomach feels tight or my shoulders feel high or my, you know, by identifying where I'm feeling things in my body, then I can say, well, I'm not fine. I am I have that tightness in my stomach that might be a cue that I'm anxious. Okay, well, then what am I anxious about? And to help me gain access to the feelings that I'm trying to avoid um, and to mm. kind of parse them out that way. Because anger in particular, is um, I've found that it can be a, a blanket emotion for me. We learned a lot mm-hmm. about how anger can be a it's a secondary emotion a lot of the times,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I'm not really feeling angry, I'm feeling rejected or I'm not really feeling angry. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling mm-hmm. afraid or uncomfortable, and that's mm-hmm. what the feel wheel concept is about like don't get don't throw things like fine or angry at me. Let's go deeper than that mm-hmm. and get to the root of where it's coming from
1: mm-hmm. yeah great... I have found that yeah. fear is like the root of every negative emotion that I have. Yeah. So, if I'm if I'm angry about something or I'm sad or frustrated or whatever, when I look for the fear underneath it and for me what um and I've talked about this on the show before um particularly working on the 12 steps and and doing um you know my own sort of fearless moral inventory <laughs> showed that I had a fear that I had no value. Um, and therefore I would get a lot of, like, fear of rejection. And that Mm -hmm. those two basic, like, really the one basic thing, the fear that I had no value, which was my story that I told myself, led to basically every crummy emotion that I was then drinking over. And once I lost the Mm -hmm. story that said, well, wait a sec, what if we entertain the possibility that by walking around on the planet, you have value just by being here? What if what if we open up to that possibility even if it doesn't feel true <laughs> yet? Then I've lost that story and it's, it, it opens up a whole new realm of possibility. Yeah. Yeah, that's also, great. To John's I point, too, that's... to
2: be able to change the vocabulary. I mean, I love that concept of conjuring up the word calm or, or um, you know, changing the kind of frame of reference. I mean, to have a meditation where you're just... Thinking worthy, the word "worthy" to yourself, and
0: and mm-hmm.
2: you know, changing. Our, we've, t- we've done we've done a lot of talking about changing our inner dialogue on this show, mm-hmm. and how powerful that can be, even if it doesn't, you know, sink in completely. It's it's uh, not something that comes naturally to most people.
1: Mm-hmm. And I've read that the myself. words "I am" are particularly powerful. If you say "I am fill in the blank," then it sort of that sets your mind in motion and that's what you end up becoming. So if you just sit there and say I am valueless that creates that reality versus if you say I am worthy. Um, you taught me John, that go ahead. Center. Sorry. I,
0: no, you taught me that. I'd say I am enough. I mean,
1: mm.
0: you know, I think yep. that there's this this wisdom of no escape. That's a Pema Chodron slogan. And certainly, you know, I probably would have scoffed at myself, you know, five years ago thinking that I'd live my life <laughs> by slogans. But truly, I mean, you know, whether it's one day at a time or, you know, the wisdom of no escape, I think that that's really important. And Sally touched on something, you know, calling a friend and, you know, saying, here's what I'm feeling. You know, this idea of using other people as mirrors. I mean, sometimes Mm. when we say I am, we feel so alone, you know, And, and that the idea is if you're feeling fear, you know, we live on a planet with 7 billion people. We're not the only ones that feel fear. So one of the meditations right. is to sit for five minutes and to breathe in other people's fear and breathe out relief. Mm-hmm. Because somebody oh, wow. else in the world at this moment is feeling what you're feeling, maybe even to a magnitude of a thousand times worse than you're feeling it. And mm-hmm. if you can sit there and breathe in their pain and breathe out relief, you know, sort of tilting that shift from internal to external I think that there's a lot of value there too. So you know, I, I find myself sometimes saying, "I breathe in fear, and I breathe out relief. I breathe in fear, I breathe out relief."
3: That's yeah. great. I love that story. I love that. And um, I, I was just I'm reminded of, you know, one of the great gifts for me of having been th- having gone through this this cancer treatment is this shift in perspective. On, um one of the things that I've that I've done is to I you know take time to notice other people. So so for example, you know there's a there's a or take time to see the humanity in other people. So I was having mm-hmm. a particularly difficult time when my my daughter had chosen not to go to school or just said she was refused to go to school and I was so frustrated and set up and I just felt like I didn't know what I was going to do and I couldn't make her go and I went into the the um, coffee shop where I get my coffee in the morning and um, and and I and so the the woman behind the counter was like well, how are you doing today and I said well you know to be honest I'm really uptight and I, my daughter wouldn't go to school and I don't know what to do about it and she looked at me and she said oh I used to do that <laughs> <laughs> she was just, just a little older than you know and, and like and all of a sudden I saw this person instead of just the lady behind the counter giving me coffee, yeah. I saw this other person and there is this exchange that we had and now when I see her we say hello and, and and you know, how are you doing? And it was just it that that opening to to see the humanity of other people makes you it just opened up my world so much more. So when I'm it's and it's so cool to be able to do that, to say, Oh my God, there's all this whole city, there's all these people and we're all human beings and we all have our problems and We're not really not alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's another.
1: And it's it's a really persistent problem. I just want to ask about that because I feel Mm -hmm. like when we get into early recovery, I I hear this a lot from people. It's like, all right, (coughs) excuse me, I'll, I'll stop drinking or I'll stop gambling, or I'll stop using drugs or whatever, but there's no way I'm going to call somebody. I'm not going to call a sponsor every day. I'm not going to call. I I had somebody say to me, I'm not a sharer. And I said, well, right, you're not a sharer because you don't share. So, like, <laughs> what what is that resistance when we first come in, or even now, um, to calling somebody or reaching out?
3: Well, isn't it that desire to isolate, you know? It's that, it's that wanting to... It's just that with my friend who says, um, you know, she has this little pity frog in her pocket and she can take it out at any time and just sit with it. You know, there's that, that piece of you that doesn't want to get out of... I don't know. Maybe that's oversimplifying, but I know that's for oh, me. Agree with Comfortable. That. I think,
0: I think we cling to our pain. And I think because yeah. it becomes such a part of our identity... And, and, yes. and truly, I mean, without it, you know, do we do we risk losing ourselves? Do we risk yes. having people, you know, judge us? I remember, you know, the guy who became my sponsor, look at me. He's like, dude, we're Martians, you know. We're, it's okay. <laughs> you know, <you're,
3: laughs> yeah.
0: And it was just funny because he, his his idea was that, you know, nobody here is going to judge you. And I, and I think that's why it's so important for people to go into the rooms. I mean, I would say, you know, everybody that walks this planet could get something out of going into the rooms and listening mm-hmm. to people share so honestly because everybody has a story, but the problem is that the story sometimes keeps us separate. I mean we are all multifaceted. I i, I read another kind of treasure quote today that said, you know, everybody on the face of this earth has the has the propensity or the ability to wake up and and truly, I think it's by it's only by sharing with other people that you realize that we are all interdependent and not alone. But it, there's so much resistance in the beginning because it seems so foreign, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing that I always kind of remember too is that you know I got to the point where I was so I was so miserable, uh, and what I heard in the rooms when I first came in was. You you know that this idea that I had to do something different. You know, I, I, if I, as long as I, you know, you, you do the same thing, you're going to feel the same thing. And if I, I had to be willing to risk doing something different, and the doing something different for me was to call people, pick up the phone. I used to have somebody who said, "Call me and hang up just for practice." You know, and that was that that really helped me. So, I think also, yeah. yeah, just by human nature, it's it's.
2: I was having this conversation recently with a friend of mine, like, why is it so much simpler or accessible to have, you know, to believe in the pain or just to believe in the, the negativity or the, you know, the feeling that things aren't going to work out or that we're not worthy than it is to believe in the fact that everything either just is as it is or that it's going to be okay or that we will survive this. I mean, it's, you know, they say that the opposite of fear is faith, but faith is something that is, you know... it's you, you feel vulnerable and exposed when you have faith or even hope. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we, we tend to stick to things like expectations, which have our storyline attached to them,
3: mm-hmm.
2: as opposed to just accepting things the way that they are. It's a very vulnerable feeling. And when you're in the rooms or or having a reciprocal conversation with somebody who has a shared experience, you feel that you're on, you know, you're completely accepted and on an equal playing field with somebody else. And it's such a rare thing, especially in our culture. We're sort of hardwired to, Either be better than or worse than. You know, there isn't. We're not. We're not very equalized in our in the stories that we present to other people either. You know,
0: fundamentally. Mm-hmm. We're also
1: hardwired that, to numb out. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Of
2: course. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, I think you're right, Catherine. I mean, human beings, you know, sort of fundamentally want what three things: safety, satisfaction, and connection, right? And yeah. I think that we do have this negativity bias. You know, if you think of it in terms of a reptilian brain, you know, avoid harm, right? And, and you know, this guy, Rick Hansen, says you need to pet the lizard, feed the mouse, and hug the monkey. You know, it's sort of like...
1: <laughs> pet the lizard, those feed are the, the three mouse, parts and hug of the brain. monkey.
0: You have to be aware Gene, I of I hope it, you're that tweeting
1: the, that. <laughs> pet
0: the lizard, feed the mouse, and hug the monkey. And that's Rick Hansen. Um, you know, one that's of the great. things that I heard at Tara Brock recently was that into the wound, it's a roomy quote, into the wound, light, enter. And, and you know, I would have been like, yeah, right, um, a long time ago. You know, you want to keep this sort of face to the world and, and, you know, always be on this sort of wheel of improvement. I mean, it's everywhere in our culture. The idea of just sitting and kind of letting things be, you know, then you you kind of get this sense that everything changes anyway. And, yes, we want safety, satisfaction, and connection, but we also have to recognize that, you know, we're not in control and that life contains suffering and joy, and I mean it's just like the weather, right? Things come, yeah. things go. That wasn't the Definitely. way. Definitely. Yeah, that wasn't the way I was raised. I mean, I was sort of thinking I was in control.
1: Mhm. Definitely. And you know, as I was doing a little bit of research for the show, I came across an article that was kind of talking about how to sit with your feelings and one of the things that it mentioned or sort of how it framed the discussion was that sometimes we don't want to feel our feelings and what it kind of posited was that there can be old patterns like shame that arise Mm -hmm. and Ellie you produced the show recently that we did on shame that was based on the Brené Brown um, sort of model about how to you know deal with shame and so I don't know if you just want to comment on that. It's the idea of, like, we don't want to feel our feelings is sort of how this article framed it. That's not really what it meant. But what happens if those old patterns
2: arise? I think for me that the first trick is learning how to identify the fact that I'm in a pattern again, Mm -hmm. Um, and that all ties back to the the thing It always seems to to, to tie back to, which is community. I mean, by... By living a life where I am connected to other people and I am vulnerable with other people, and um, I mean I can be in a shame spiral and not even know that I am. But if I have trusted people that I that I confide in that I talk to on a daily basis, they start to hear my dialogue change or my behavior change, or yes. I might start to isolate or say things that are self-deprecating. You know, and I'm I'm famous for using humor for that. You know, I'll try to crack a joke about something, like usually against myself, and I'll think I'm being funny. But somebody who knows me well will will step right up and say, hey, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Um, Because patterns can be insidious little bastards. I mean, they sneak right in, and you don't really Mm -hmm. even know that you're doing them. Um, And so I, you know, if I'm able to identify the pattern, then I'm able to have that sort of sliver of awareness to be able to make some sort of behavioral change. Um, and sometimes it's as simple as whatever I feel like doing, I need to do. Or if one option seems easy and the other option seems uncomfortable, I do the uncomfortable thing. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm, you know, feeling, if there's times when I don't even really know how I'm feeling. And so all I, wa- I want to do is like binge watch Netflix or, you know, clean the house from top to bottom or do something evasionary that feels simple to me. I'll pick up the phone and call somebody because that feels uncomfortable. Um, and you know, the the shame one is some is one that I'm getting better at identifying just by making sure I take time. I mean my version of meditation it's you know, it's I think everybody has their own patented way of doing it, which is to hold still, to sit still with my thoughts and watch them. And you know, hear how it is that I'm talking to myself and how my body is feeling and um, you know, maybe pick up the phone to make a coffee date or do something that gets me out of myself because I, so I, we don't powerful. have any possibility of changing our behavior or our patterns if, if we don't take some time mm-hmm. in practice, some deliberate time to check in with how we're doing. And, I mean, who does that? Who really, you know, we're so packed full and, and we're tweeting and Facebooking and running around all the time. Nobody. We don't really stop and sort of say, hey, you know, how am I doing? How am I feeling? Am I trying to avoid something? Am I feeling unstable or, uh, you know, rejected or ignored or angry?
3: And I don't know about you guys, but I know for me, I I definitely feel like I should be able to figure it out on my own, you know? Oh, yeah. You know, right? And then I had this, uh, (laughs) I'm thinking about this great image that somebody shared with me somewhere where they said, you know, there's a spot on the back of your head where you there's no way you ever will be able to see that with your own eyes you know you need a mirror to see that spot on the back of your head you know um and something about that means that you need other people you, you can't see sometimes you can't see what's wrong yeah. or what's the matter without the But that that other view that those other eyes
1: absolutely
2: and there's a guy okay. in the recovery
1: community this guy says that we're in the box but the instructions on how to get out are oh, yeah. on the outside, on the outside. So you need other <laughs> that's people great. that's great you know like Sally you know what yeah. i'm talking about you you, yeah. you need somebody um on the outside of the box who's in recovery who can share the instructions with you how to get out oh, it's well, true. that's true and i'm just thinking like you know ellie that's... you said go ahead john
0: oh no i was going to comment on ellie i mean you know this idea of kind of doing what's uncomfortable and I do think that that is one way to kind of figure out what our unconscious patterns are, right? Because so there's no other way to figure it out unless there's something unconscious. So this idea of the issues in our tissues, you know, where mm-hmm. you feel it in your body, that's probably how we felt it when before we could form cognitive thought, you know? Um, and one of the things that, that's been helpful is to say, okay, wow, that is a rock. And, and, and I think of myself as this sort of stream of consciousness, right? And it kind of moves on this along this riverbed that was formed before I knew how to make words, but you know every time I go around the same rock over and over, I'm like, "Okay, that's something you know at least gives me that recognition and awareness and the other thing that that I somebody gave me the instruction is if you focus solely on a single point, your mind is going to tilt that way so But the instruction was to sit, look at a point on the wall for three minutes, and then suddenly stop take a deep breath, and then expand your, you know, vision to be as wide as the room is. And you feel the difference when you kind of get away from the singular focus on one thing and sort of open your view to a much broader, I mean, you can actually feel it. Hmm. Wow.
3: I like that.
1: So, no, these are all, these are amazing techniques um, that I think, you know, we can very easily put into practice. I mean, that's a that's a simple one to get my mind around. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, the idea of the good stuff being, you know, harder to believe. But, you know, Anne Lamott says that when we're born with a human body, we get the full range of human emotions that it's a package deal. So we get the good stuff and the bad stuff. And we talk about on the show how, you know, when we're active, in our addictions you know we don't get the good stuff either we numb out the bad stuff and we think that's all we want to do but you know suddenly um you know these these good emotions come up and and that can even be in my experience Then that can be a little overwhelming like I don't I don't know what to do with these big emotions and I'm still even I've said this on the show like I'm not sure I know how to experience joy like I, I don't I don't know if I know how to do that um that's something. That's my word of 2015. Joy, because I, I want to mm. try to tackle that. But um, Sally, does that resonate at all with you? Totally. The good and stuff it's came really, up.
3: But it really, it's true. It's like you know, and again, going back to this whole you know cancer treatment experience. You know, there's the way people just came out of the woodwork to support me was so you know it's so beautiful and and. Really, I mean, uh, the, the team that works for me. For a surprise, they all got together and got these T-shirts made for one of these breast cancer runs or something, and they surprised me with that. And you know, uh, my I, I'm one of seven children, and my sisters, and they came down from wherever they were. White mean, people just came out of the woodwork to, to help me. It was, you know, I'm so used to feeling like I have to do it on my own and be on top of things. Um yeah, let Yeah, I mean, that because in, in fairness, like, you let
1: them. Yeah, I had to let
3: them. Yeah, yeah. Let let them.
2: Them. Yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. Another thing, Sally, That's you amazing. and I share um, <clears throat> a cancer experience. I also went through cancer treatments and recovery, and <laughs> one of the, you know, I, I've mentioned this many times before on the show, also talking about turd gifts. I mean, the things that come out of difficult times that actually end up enriching our lives, and if I'm not experiencing the harder parts, I'm not going to get those gifts <laughs> either, but um, you know, in the in the, the thick of my radiation and chemo when I was really, really sick and um, you know, really immobilized and having to let people help me as I as I got better and I emerged from that. One of the things that I changed in the way that I spoke to myself, I can remember lying in bed and just, you know, listening to a, a sitter playing with my kids downstairs and just thinking, God, I would do anything to just go to the grocery store with my kids or, you know, bite into a slice of pizza instead of this feeding tube or something and I really wish that I was hoping that I could hang on to that kind of gratitude for the simpler things after I felt better, and it's a it's a very elusive thing to do. So there would be a day when I'm sort of mumbling and grumbling and feeling sorry for myself, and instead of saying, you know, I have to vacuum the house today, I would say, like, I get to, I get mm, to do yeah.
3: this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. somehow,
2: the, the, some those tougher experiences that we go through, not around but through, in sobriety, mm-hmm. can help us sort of, you know change the way that we view the things that used to be i mean it's all part of the story again i mean the story yeah, you can yeah. use your the power of story for good or for evil really it's it mm-hmm. comes down to the way yeah. that we reframe things and um and also being forced to in early sobriety and in, when i had cancer and now that i you know i'm not driving and there's some other things that are difficult in my life i'm i've the situation has been created for me where I have to ask for help. In cancer treatment, yeah. I had to ask for help, and now I have to ask mm-hmm, for help. And mm-hmm. those things, you know, sometimes just being open to the idea that these things, you know, that the lessons that are, they're they're here to teach us something for a reason.
3: Right. And early sobriety
2: mm-hmm. is full of opportunities like that because yeah. everything is so loud and pointy and prickly and you feel mm-hmm. like you're wearing your nerves on the outside of your skin and
3: mm-hmm. you don't,
2: I mean, at least I didn't know how I was going to get from one day, to the you know, one end of the day to the other, um, you know, take the uncomfortable route and pretty soon those things become comfortable and it's astonishing how quickly those things become life-changing. Mm, even mm-hmm. even people listening to the show, I mean, there's, there's a reason people would listen to a show like The Bubble Hour to be able to hear other people's stories and, and get that feeling of me too and, and connection and safety that that John talked about. That's just a small example of what it is that we can get if we put a little bit of vulnerability out into the world. Just to see what it is we can get back in return. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, I like and your, you're your mentioning there, the Ellie.
3: gratitude practice.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
3: Go ahead, John. So I like
0: the idea, Ellie, of you know this 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 small moment. You know, how do you hold on to them? And you know, if you sort of think about it in terms of the weather, we've all sat on the beach or you know in the sunlight, turned our face to the sun, and you kind of have that moment. You know, where you feel this sort of connection with the world and and peace, et cetera. and you know, we want to hold on to that, but, but we can't hold on to it. But the idea of, you know, just sort of letting it soak through your body and, you know, mm-hmm. letting those sort of joy neurons or gratitude neurons fire together for a little while, I mean, it really does become part of the fabric of who we are. And yeah, I think that that's what's so important for me is I'm not a single thing. I'm not a, you know, lying, cheating gambler. All And that's not the only thing. I mean, I've had aspects where... You know, I, I'm certainly not proud of my behavior, but if I sort of broaden my view, just like every other human being on the planet, I'm multifaceted and capable of multiple things, and, you know, I think I'm just trying to tilt my my mind and my, my, my whole attention towards these, you know, foundations of well-being, you know, the calm, the peace, yeah. the gratitude, that type of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, we have spoken on the show about about how to build a gratitude practice. So if if listeners are interested in that, uh, we did one at the end of November in 2014 and 2013. So people in recovery talking about how to build a gratitude practice. And, um, you know, I think that's a great reminder. And, John, the, the examples that you give of sort of sitting in nature, it also makes me think of Anne Lamott. She wrote a book called Help thanks. Wow. And she calls mm. those the three essential prayers. Um, you know, so if we don't know what to do, help me, help me, help me. You know, that's a legit oh. prayer, um, yeah. you know, but also yeah. to, to say thank you for, for what we have. And, um, and wow, I, I love yeah. that as a prayer that you see the full moon or you see the sunrise or you see a cool bird or something and say, wow, that's, you know, that. I I like the idea that that's creating a new fabric of my life. Um, That's a really beautiful image. And one of the best gifts of of
2: sobriety also, I mean, how often, I remember as the fog cleared for me in early sobriety, you know, I wouldn't have noticed a bird if it it invited me to dinner before. But (laughs) to be able to, you know, to be able to sort of, to, to, the I was thinking about the what you said Catherine about not being sure you could experience joy, it's something that I really identify with also because I have a real idea of what joy looks like. You know, it looks like that person's Facebook update or it looks like a surprise party or it looks like, you know, something huge. But if we can let go of our storylines around emotions also and now that we're present in our bodies for better or for worse and in our minds for better or for worse, those moments come more frequently if we're
1: open to seeing them. Definitely. And so we've come to the top of the hour. It always goes so fast. And um, we've covered a lot of ground here tonight. So I'd like to go around the group and ask for one thing that you've learned tonight that you'll take away to help your recovery. So, Sally, why
3: don't I start with you? So for me, I think I would say that whole, I love the idea that just sitting, just that idea of the mountaintop and sitting and waiting for stuff to just come in and out and just sitting that was the big one for me,
1: yeah, beautiful image there with the mountain, and John, how about you?
0: Well, I think the idea again sort of reinforced the idea of just the wisdom of no escape I mean you don't we don't have to escape; we can just sit and yeah. hold and recognize and allow and ultimately investigate, but there's no need to investigate or or root out at this point.
1: Oh, and I even just felt my little alcoholic ego pop up for a second there, like,
3: oh, I don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) No
1: escape? What do you mean? (laughs) I just spent an hour talking about it, and yet my ego wants to chime in. Um, Yes, I'm writing that one down, (laughs) the wisdom of (laughs) no escape. Also, I think one of you said too that it's a practice, so that's mm. that's true mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ellie,
2: oh, I've, there's so much here. I mean, this has been a really fantastic show for me. Thank you both for for being on the show. And you know, I I I just it reinforces how the whole idea of feeling the feelings, but also letting go of the story. And I'm a wordsmith and a writer, and I I, I am astonished at how much that's a liability a lot of times in getting access to my feelings. I like to put flowery language around everything. And, um, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about how I put stories around emotions. I put stories around everything just to soften the blow because um, yeah. I'm so convinced that the blow is going to hurt and it's I'm never going to make it through it. But, you know, hearing all the stories that you all have shared and, and that I hear from other brave people, it just reminds me that, um, you know, Letting go of that story is is such a it's such a freeing and powerful calming force in my life. So I'm glad we spent time talking about that tonight.
3: You yeah, know, it'd be I like beautiful. One
2: thing popped into my head for people that are
0: listening. I mean, just in terms of you know the the practice, you know, and even the idea of going into the rooms and meetings and you know working the steps. You know, the idea was, you know, as Mike Tyson said, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Well, the thing about practice is. Is, and somebody said this quote about battle. In battle, you don't rise to the occasion. You default to your level of training. Mm, so yeah. The more yeah. train, oh. the more you practice, you know, you get this you get this sort of foundation, and you kind of raise that foundation the more you practice. I like that. So say that Great. one
1: one more time.
0: So in, say that one battle, one more time,
1: Dan.
0: In battle, you don't rise to the level of training, Or, you know, you don't rise to the occasion. In battle, you don't rise to the occasion. You default to the level of your training.
3: And that's why it's so important
0: to go to meetings and sit and talk to people.
1: Talk,
0: talk, talk. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's where we always land on this show is connect with other people in recovery. We do. do. And I'd like to share a thought from Marianne Williamson on the topic of feeling your feelings. She said... If you have no template for honoring feelings, processing them, bearing witness to them, surrendering them, and watching them miraculously transform, then they can appear in your life as frightening energy ruling you instead of being ruled by you. It is time for your slavery to end and for your mastery to begin. So in short, we can do this we can recover one feeling at a time. So John and Sally and Ellie, thank you all so much for being here. I really learned a lot tonight, so really appreciate
3: that. Yes, thank you.
1: As we close close the show tonight, we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. There you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. Visit the Bubble Hour's website at thebubblehour.com to find a link to many recovery resources, including Jean's blog, Unpickled, and our email address, thebubblehour at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and please let us know your feedback about tonight's show and any other topic suggestions. We thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you have a great evening. Thank you, everybody.
3: Thanks,
2: Catherine. Thanks, John and Sally. Have a good night. Thank you.
1: Good night. Bye-bye. Good night.